Hello, and welcome to Gleebooks Author Talks. We've partnered with 2SER to bring you a live recording of our events, held in one of Sydney's oldest independent bookshops. So, good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for your patience. My name's James. I'm the events manager here at Gleebooks. And as always, it's a pleasure to be here on behalf of the shop, but also on behalf of Black Ink. Before we begin the proceedings tonight, I want to take a moment to acknowledge and pay my respects to the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. It's upon their ancestral lands that Gleebooks is built, and I think it's important that we take a little bit of time to remember that, to reflect upon it, and remember that it's land upon which sovereignty was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. So, to introduce the man of whom you'll be asking the questions, uh, Peter Harcher, everybody. As I'm sure everyone knows, Peter is the political and international editor of the City Morning Herald, uh, whose books include The Sweet Spot, Bubble Man, and To the Bitter End, and this is his second quarterly essay. Tonight, Peter's going to be in conversation with Richard Glover. Richard Glover, as you all also know, uh, presents Drive on 702 ABC Sydney, the comedy program Thank God It's Friday on ABC Local Radio, and has written 12 books, including the prize-winning memoir Flesh Wounds. I'm really excited to see these two incredible people with us here today. Please join me in welcoming Peter Harcher and Richard Glover. This is a really compelling book. Um, it's one of those books where if you're reading it, you will annoy anybody else who's in the room because you'll say, let me read this bit out and then that bit. And did you know this? And this is incredible. And there's a fact about cement alone, which is worth the purchase <laughs> price of this book. Um, but let me get, get you started by... by you know, you've published many books and there's a process when you publish books where you get invited sometimes to do a launch at Parliament or a, a, a talk at a university. This one's been a bit different though, hasn't it? Um, I have written a couple of books, Richard, but not as many as you. Twelve, according to, to James. Very impressive. We should be interviewing you about your books. Um, yes, it was unusual because in talking to one of the great universities about hosting an event to talk about the book, uh, the university was very keen until they learned that China was involved, at which point uh, the person at the other end of the phone said, oh, well, actually, I need to check with higher authority. Um, and we had a launch. We had a... I wanted to keep it bipartisan. It's not a partisan essay or a partisan exercise in any way. So we got Kevin Rudd to do a Canberra launch and Julie Bishop to do a Sydney launch. Canberra launch was in Parliament House, and so I was talking to one of the... Uh, a very senior parliamentary figure who was keen to help organise, you know, it's access in Parliament, it's tricky and all this stuff. And he was very keen to help until he heard that the word China was involved, at which point he lost a lot of interest and said he couldn't help me. Um, it's, it's not like um, other subjects, and that's a shame, because if we're self-censoring, then the Chinese Communist Party propaganda department is winning. The, the structure of the book is, in a way, a, I apologise for the word, but a series of, of awakening, not woke moments, but awakening moments of where people suddenly understand that this is a bit different to other discussions we've had as, as a nation. Can you go through some of those moments, maybe starting with, with Joe Hockey and then moving on to Stephen Conroy and, uh, and, and then there's a third awakening moment with, with Penny and, and Richard Miles and, and Bill Shorten? Joe Hockey had only just been made treasurer. He'd been treasurer for all of three days and there was a G20 meeting in Bali that he had to get to to represent Australia. 
Uh, one of the meetings that had already been arranged for him was with the uh, Chinese finance minister, his counterpart, Lu Jiwei. And um, Hockey's hotel suite was in a, a Balinese-style thatched hut, and he waited there, and the Chinese finance minister turned up, uh, breezed in, sat down, lit a cigarette, leaned back in his chair and said, so, why won't you let me buy Rio Tinto? <laughs> At which point a sort of flummoxed uh, Joe Hockey recovers and says, well, if you let Qantas buy China Eastern, <laughs> sure, you can buy Qantas. Uh, um, buy Rio. Uh, At which point um, Lu Jiwei says, well, look, you know, let's be reasonable. I only want to buy 15% of your top 200 companies. <laughs> 15% being the maximum for foreign ownership limit on uh, listed companies. And it just went on and on, the jousting back and forth. And Hockey was, apart from being uh, you know, stunned at, the, uh, at, at the, sh the sheer brazenness of it, was a bit shaken by the intent behind it, which was either a serious intent to buy as many assets as the Australian government would permit, or an attempt to intimidate uh, Joe Hockey. Either way, he wasn't impressed. And for that reason, Joe Hockey, uh, from then on, started to get um, cast a more jaundiced eye on things like, you might remember, he started enforcing real estate um, uh, transactions where people had flouted the FIRB restrictions and he started... Well, only if they were his neighbours. <laughs> well, the, I think if the, if the property value was over $10 million, you got special attention, yes. So, uh, Stephen, Con Stephen Conroy oh, is the yes. next woke, uh, awakening, I suppose. Yes, yeah, so... Uh, then on the Labor side, you had Stephen Conroy when he was Shadow Defence Minister, and uh, he'd been in a, in a debate. Uh, it was um, where he had set out a pretty a pretty tough policy on the South China Sea, even tougher than the Liberal government, and said, if Labor's elected, uh, we will take part in freedom of nav navigation operations um, to keep the uh, you know keep claims under control, uh, and. Uh, he got a phone call the next day from the New South Wales uh, Secretary of the Labor Party, according to the story that uh, Stephen Conroy told quite a few of his, of his colleagues, because Conroy was pretty shocked by this. He didn't keep it secret for very long. And Kayla Monane said to him, uh, Joe, uh, I'm confusing, confusing my politicians now, occupational hazard. And <laughs> you see so many of them come and go, <laughs> especially prime ministers. Um, Steve... Unless we change our China policy, we're going to lose a $400,000 donation that's been pledged to us. Uh, this was Huang Zhongmo, and um, Conroy, of course, declined uh, the invitation, but it really shook him, and he got on the phone to his colleagues and said, look, you know, we've got these guys pulling our, pulling our chains like this. Uh, this is really serious. So that was another one. And look, I think in a way the most interesting one and maybe the most sort of weird one in terms of our love of Chinese Australians actually was the third one, which supposed that the sons and daughters of China had the people who were Australian citizens, maybe for five generations, supposed that they had loyalty towards China. Now, this is a meeting of, of uh, Bill Shorten, Penny Wong and Richard Miles is the Labor defence guy at the time. Uh, who knocks on their door? Uh, this was at a time when China wanted an extradition treaty with Australia. An extradition treaty with China, of course, is what set off all the current trouble in Hong Kong initially. Uh, the, the Chinese official responsible for state security turned up in Parliament House and asked to meet Bill Shorten and the Labour leadership and did. And at that meeting, uh, his name was uh, Meng. Meng said, uh, look, we, you know, we really want this treaty. And the Labour, Labour guy said, well, we're not inclined to do it. And Meng said to them, he threatened them. He said... 
Well, it would be a terrible shame if I had to tell the Chinese-Australian community that the Labour Party was anti-China, uh, which is a threat to mobilise the Chinese diaspora, of course, on, uh, on his behalf. So that was a bit of a wake-up moment for uh, those three Labour leaders, Shorten, Penny Wong, Richard Miles. Um, it also was pretty brazen, and, and they, were, they were pretty uh, outraged that he would uh, claim to speak on behalf of 1.2 million Chinese Australians, most of whom, of course, are uh, you know, overwhelmingly uh, positive contributors and loyal citizens. And uh, they, they were pretty offended that he would uh, pretend or claim to represent uh, them and claim that he would be able to influence them. Okay, so this is a really interesting point, though, is just because Beijing claims that they have the loyalty of the sons and daughters of the diaspora, not only in Australia but in Canada and elsewhere, doesn't mean they have. Why do we think that in some cases they may have? Well, I'll tell you one more woke moment that's in the essay, Richard, which is uh, when there was a proposal a couple of years ago to have uh, two big concerts, one in Sydney Town Hall, one in Melbourne Town Hall, to celebrate the life of Chairman Mao, Mao Zedong, uh, founder of modern, modern uh, China. And the group that organised it was uh, a pro-Beijing group. Immediately, uh, another group of local Chinese Australians uh, sprang up and opposed these concerts and promised to impose a picket line to prevent the concerts going ahead. In, in the event, the two concerts were cancelled. But what it did is it, it, it illuminated starkly the divide between the Chinese-Australian community who have primary, uh, primary uh, affiliation to Australia and those who thought there was a, an overriding uh, affiliation to the Chinese Communist Party and to celebrate the life and legacy of Chairman Mao, which of course has now been revived in full glorious uh, colour and historical, um, what the Chinese call, uh, well anyway, uh, full glorious colour <laughs> by Xi Jinping. Um, so this is the thing, right? So. Uh, you almost never hear, and although we like to pretend that we know, you know, we tell ourselves and you'll hear our, our politicians say it quite often, Australia knows China well. We understand China. That doesn't mean you know how to read a fortune cookie, right? It's, uh, you almost never hear in Australia the term the United Front Work Department. The United Front Work Department was one of the original departments in the, in the Chinese Communist Party when it was first created in the 1920s. And it's now a department of the Chinese state. It exists... Uh, to uh, advance the interests of the Chinese Communist Party through covertly, covertly, important point, through the Chinese diaspora worldwide. Uh, now, it's not a secret, although it works covertly. Um, in fact, doing an, an event with Julie Bishop this week, I was talking about the United Front Work Department and how uh, people seem to be amazed that this thing exists. It's a large government department orchestrated and funded by the, uh, the Chinese state. And Julie said, oh, I've been there. I've been to the United It's a real thing. Um, the president of China himself, Xi Jinping, has described it as one of China's three magic weapons. So if the president calls it a magic weapon, we probably should take it seriously. Uh, and it works through, uh, as, as I said, through the Chinese diaspora around the world. And it's really um, unfair and unreasonable that it puts uh, claims on the loyalties of ethnic Chinese people around the world. It doesn't matter what country they live in what country citizenship they've decided to adopt, where they've decided to bring up their children, where they think their primary loyalty is, at some point many of them will have someone from the United Front Work Department making a claim on their loyalty. Professor, There's a professor at UTS, um, his name is Fang Chong Yi, who estimates that, or he counts, that in Sydney alone there are more than 300 United Front uh, organisations. 
some are uh, masquerade as uh, student associations, some as business groups, some as patriotic associations, uh, homeland associations, uh, some of which are genuinely independent, local grassroots. Others are, are organised and influenced by the United Front Work Department. And this is a struggle going on today within the Chinese-Australian community as illuminated by that moment with the Mao concerts. And uh, members of the Chinese-Australian community have said to me and to many others uh, that they are under pressure, that they would love to have some assistance. Mm. So, I mean, let's drill down into this because it's so interesting. Australia is a multicultural uh, country and a lot of people have loyalty to the country they've left. D to, to cite an example at random, the, our, our Armenian community, a wonderful Armenian community, wonderful Turkish community, they, they differ about the Ar Armenian genocide and where that term should be used and they might have protests in the street with, with banners. And you'd have to say that the view of most Turkish Australians probably does reflect the view of Ankara in terms of the media gen uh, Armenian genocide. So how is that different to these Chinese Australians who just happen to agree that, that Hong Kong, for instance, should be part of the mainland? Well, of course, uh, you know, Australia is well accustomed with immigrants who keep close ties to their countries of origin. And Robert Ray, the former Labor minister, when he was uh, immigration minister, he used to go to many ethnic uh, communities and he would say to them, look, you know, we understand you love your home country, when you're watching the soccer, you're going you're to cheer for your home country. He said, but I expect your kids to cheer for the Australian team. Um, you know, just a neat way of, of describing that we know it takes time. Take your time. Uh, you'll get there. We have confidence. And, of course, that's been uh, the experience of the last couple of centuries. The difference is twofold. The difference is, first, this is not about freely held opinions, loyalties or affiliations. This is about a, an organisation that is run and controlled by the Chinese government making claims on people, regardless of their actual views and opinions. Uh, second, it's deeply racist because it, it is imposing these demands and claims on them uh, because of their ethnicity, not because of their, their free choice of, of citizenship uh, or where they decided to bring their kids up or whether they've ever lived in China, indeed, uh, but purely because of their race. And this is, uh, this is another, another tool used by the Chinese Communist Party is to claim quote, the flesh and blood belongs to China. So your eternal soul, as well as your flesh and blood, according to the Chinese Communist Party, uh, must report back to Beijing and do as you're told. And the final difference uh, is that, uh, unlike any other country at the moment, uh, there's only one uh, which uh, has the objective of trying to take control of the Australian political system, the Australian social and economic structures, uh, to wield covert control, in the words of the former ASIO chief Duncan Lewis, to, quote, take over our political system and pull the strings from afar. Mm -hmm. Okay, which brings us to really the most radical suggestion in this book, and I kind of reeled back almost when, when I read it, because you're a re very reasonable person, um, and so it kind of surprised I me. I think he means that in a good way. Yeah, and you actually say that you think that the immigration department, you, you, you spend a number of pa pages singing the praises of Chinese Australians and the contribution they've made, and then you suggest that, look, maybe we should be bringing in as many, maybe even more Chinese Australians, but we should be doing so from places like Hong Kong and Taiwan and actually not from mainland China. Yeah, so I've suggested a number of... So the, the broad picture is this. Uh, it's taken Australia a long time to wake up that Xi Jinping is, is not uh, the previous leaders of China. He's a much more aggressive uh, and authoritarian leader. But having woken up, at some point, we were going to have to say to ourselves, well, okay, so this is what they're doing. 
what are we supposed to do in response? It's not just a normal country. It's not just a normal situation. We have to take steps. Now, the easy uh, categorization is, so, okay, do we continue to engage or do we disengage? And that, that debate is now well advanced in the U.S., in the US, the, the, big, the big word is decoupling. And the big theme is breaking our ties and pushing China back at every level. Starts with trade tariffs, uh, then it moves to technology, then it moves to university research, uh, it moves to military competition, and it's moving across the whole landscape. They're, 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 uh, many of their top officials, including uh, their commerce secretary, pressuring American companies to stop dealings with China. Uh, so. Now, that's one response. And to me, that's an irrational response that throws the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, the other response is, okay, well, we keep dealing with China, but do we have to surrender our sovereignty? And you'll hear people say, and it was in some of the papers this morning, we need to balance, Australia needs to balance between our economic needs and our sovereignty. Well, hang on, is that true? Is, do we really have to surrender our liberties to keep trading? Is this a re I think this is a false binary, and I, 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 my suggestion is uh, that we can, we can have a full, a full and fruitful relationship with China, but to be able to engage energetically and confidently, we need to protect our democratic structures at home first. We need to have the confidence from protecting ourselves, toughening our internal protections, that we can then engage robustly without surrendering our, our liberty, liberties and having our political and other systems taken over in the process. So. Among the suggestions I make, and I make quite a few, including really basic ones, like, did you know that members of parliament don't need a security clearance? Yeah, right. Yeah. So let's have so a... So their media officer will, or their chief of staff or yeah. something, but not yeah. them. Yeah. yeah, that's right. You can, I mean, there's a fellow sitting in the parliament of New Zealand right now who spent 10 years working for a Chinese intelligence agency. He didn't think that that was an important fact to declare before he ran for office, <laughs> but he got elected. He's sitting in the parliament. That emerged, but he's still a mem member of parliament. Yes, it's a simple precaution, right? We should screen MPs, give them a security uh, clearance. Uh, and then you can have confidence that if it's, let's say, Gladys Liu, you wouldn't have to que question her loyalty. You'd know. We could all be confident, and the public could have greater confidence in the parliament. Very simple, straightforward protections like that. Uh, excuse me, is it my phone? Oh, my alarm's going off. Must be time to wake up. <laughs> Maybe it's deadline. Um, ever, since he, ever since he got a Huawei phone... <laughs> Yes, seems to be triggered by the word security clearance. <laughs> um, and one of the and one of the other things I, I say, Richard, is to avoid. You know, we want to avoid the populist backlash. We want to avoid the racist backlash. We want to avoid the Donald Trumpian, you know, decoupling. Uh, so my suggestion is uh, the immigration department has to be a lot better at finding. First of all, the foreign interference laws need to be enforced in a way uh, that winkles out the United Front Work Department, people who are already working covertly in the community by requiring them. There's no draconian punishment. They just have to put their names on the public transparency register as agents of a foreign power. There's no penalty. Uh, you know, you don't have to pay a fine. Just go online and list it. Just declare yourself. Let us know whose side you're on here. Uh, let's enforce the laws. And the Morrison government this morning announced a new uh, task force which would actually give some teeth to laws that the parliament passed a year and a half ago but have not been enforced. So let's enforce the foreign uh, interference transparency laws. Uh, and that would take a lot of pressure off a lot of the people in the Australian Chinese community. 
uh, because you know they're being pressured to work for Beijing. If the people doing that are now r required to out themselves and declare their loyalties, that changes the picture and it changes what Professor Fang calls the democratic rollback. Um, and including as part of that, yes, I suggest that the Immigration Department has had uh, demonstrable failure in uh, approving people to, for permanent residence. Uh, you know, they haven't been able to find who's coming as a covert uh, influence agent and who hasn't, who's a genuine immigrant who wants to genuinely live in Australia and share our liberties rather than working to extinguish them. Uh, the most prominent recent case is Huang Zhongmo, the Chinese billionaire who was paying off Sam, da uh, uh, giving donations legally to Sam Dastyari. Uh, the, the, the same one who was... He didn't say paying off. No, no. no. Didn't hear that. He was paying, Sam Dostoyer. The same one who gave the, allegedly gave $100,000 in an Aldi bag to the New South Wales ALP General Secretary uh, uh, to buy, the, uh, to buy the, the New South Wales branch, who's since been banned from Australia from returning. He was a permanent resident, had a $12.5 million uh, house at uh, Mossman, had permanent residency. Asia, after some years, has now banned him for being an agent of Chinese influence. He was a big one, an obvious one, and, and it took them years even to find him. There are many others. So the Immigration Department hasn't had a lot of success. So my, my suggestion is the Immigration Department needs to upgrade its skills to figure out who they're approving to come and live amongst us. And uh, as part of that, until and unless they can get those skills and conduct useful screening of, who's, of who loves liberty and who wants to uh, st stamp on liberty, um, I'm not suggesting in any way we cut back our Chinese immigration intake because our Chinese immigrants have been fantastic. We made, a, in my view, a terrible mistake kicking them out the first time it got, it, it, together with all the other so-called coloured races during white Australia and we mustn't repeat that mistake. But as a balance of risks measure, I, I have suggested uh, that until the department can get itself organised, we should cut back on the ethnic Chinese immigrants from mainland China because immigrants wanting to come here from Hong Kong and Taiwan at the moment are more likely to, to, to enjoy liberties and value liberties than people from mainland China. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not saying we should minimize Chinese intake. I am saying that we should, uh, we should limit Chinese mainland uh, agents of influence intake until we can be sure who we're dealing with. And if our politicians are going to sell their souls, could they please charge more than $100,000? <laughs> I mean, the, it, the sums of money are so pathetic, aren't they? I mean, that's the other thing about all the ICAC stuff. Is Maybe the problem is they know their own worth, Richard. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, so I suppose my starting point for all this stuff is always, you know, the white Australia and the, the terror of that and the, the, the desire not to, to, to repeat the mistakes of that time. So, you know, my starting point is, oh, well, the Americans have invested a lot of money in this country. The British have, you know, the Vesties used to own half the joint. You know, what's so bad about the, the Chinese? And I think one of the bits of the book that really started to um, step me back from all that stuff is you, you list about 11 examples where someone has offended the Chinese and they've responded in a way that frankly the Americans or the British wouldn't. You start with a, uh, you do it in chronological order. So the first example is from a little while ago, but it's the, the French president has a meeting with the Dalai Lama. What happens then? <laughs> so uh, the Chinese trade mission that was on its way to visit the European Union um, mysteriously cancels its, uh, the French leg of its tour uh, and cancels uh, an order for the one of the Chinese airlines to buy 150 Airbuses uh, that they'd ordered from France and a bunch of other uh, deals and contracts suddenly go very cold. Uh, the trade mission uh, flies to Germany and elsewhere but mysteriously doesn't land in France. One, and, you know, it is the settled practice of the 
Chinese government to use economic coercion as a tool of statecraft. So as you say, there are 11 case studies. Uh, and uh, we, we have to be braced for the fact that, um, uh, you know, at some point it's almost inevitable. Well, they've had a crack at it already in Australia and they'll have, a, they'll, they'll have more in future and we, ha we need to know that and be braced for it and not sort of pretend it doesn't happen. One of the little subtle points you make is that, is that they often don't tell you why and you say that is actually a great little bit of almost, you know, Soviet Stalinist, you know, show trials from the 1930s. They wouldn't quite ever tell you what you'd done wrong. You had to self-educate and figure it out yourself. Yeah, it's true. Um, they... Uh, of those 11 cases, I think there's only one where it was overt and they said, we are punishing you because you offended us with this, whatever the issue was. The others, it's all unstated. It's never explained why suddenly your contracts are cancelled or your exports are shut down. Uh, and the reason is, as Richard says, it's um, because they want you to conduct a self-criticism. They want you to conduct an audit of your own policies and actions, you as a country, and say to yourself, oh, well, I've upset the Chinese government. What can I have done? And the longer-term point of this is to train countries and governments worldwide into anticipating Chinese anger so you become self-censoring and self-regulating and you live in permanent fear of a Chinese reaction so that the, if you're, a, let's say, a national cabinet, uh, the first thing you're going to ask yourself with, this, with any decision is, what will the Chinese say about this? so that the Chinese don't need to do anything about it. <laughs> You're self-regulating according to their national interests. Uh, it's very shrewd, uh, sometimes quite effective. And of course, if you are doing that, if you as a, an individual, a business, a university, um, or a government, if you are doing that, you are doing China's bidding without them having to lift a finger. How clever is that? Yeah. Although here's the interesting thing of the 11 examples you, you cite. In, in many of them, people do what the Chinese want. You know, the, the first story, the French story, there is no French president or prime minister who ever meets the Dalai Lama ever again because of the 150 Airbus order. But in other cases, people do resist. And this is maybe the most optimistic point of the book, is that sometimes if you resist, you actually get away with it. Well, exactly right. Um, you know, the I've likened it. The Chinese system uh, does have real, real power and real teeth, and sometimes you will be punished, and you will be punished firmly, but other times it's just bluster and, uh, bluster and bluff to see what they can get away with. Uh, and the, the Chinese government is not going to shut down a line of exports in something that is actually uh, strategically vital to them, but they, they may well tinker with something that they don't think is vital to them. For example, they cut off uh, a lot of South Korean uh, Chinese tourism to South Korea, and Chinese sales of, uh, sorry, chi sales in China of South Korean pop music, music, K-culture, so-called. Um, uh, you know, not strategic goods, but it hurts the South Koreans nonetheless. The South Koreans gave in. Uh, the South Koreans, it divided them politically. They gave in. Uh, they uh, halted the installation of the uh, defensive missile uh, weapons detection system that they'd planned to appease China. So they won. Well, they were desperate because it meant they had to consume more gangham time themselves. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, quite a obviously very harsh. <laughs> yeah, that would be tough. But look, yes, a lot of it is bluster. A lot of it is, it's like the lion dance, right? More dance, no lion. Um, yeah. And tiny Palau uh, re has refused to buckle to uh, the Chinese government shut down their tourist trade. The Chinese government created their tourist trade and then shut it down. It's such an interesting story that the way they actually created the created it out of nothing. They, they directed 500,000 Chinese tourists to go to the tiny Palau, create this industry, and then, oh, well, we can take it away. What we bring, we can take away. 
Yes. Oh, oh, by the way, we want you to switch your diplomatic rec recognition from Taiwan to Beijing. No? Oh, okay. Well, those tourists, yeah. you know, yeah. I hope you like that industry you just had. Um, but they're not buckling so far. The president is not buckling. And he said, oh, it was getting too congested anyway, and you were doing too much, <laughs> too much environmental damage. And that's a, that's a micro, um, literally a micro, a micro state. Um, and the examples in the book and some of the, the, the encounters we talked about a moment ago, Richard, uh, you know, with whether it's um, Conroy or uh, Joe Hockey, these are cases where we know that the Chinese government demand was being resisted, and there was no there was no consequence. It was just a, it was just a try on. It was just a bluff. So you can shape. Uh, you c we, we Australia, and as Richard says, this is a, an optimistic point. But you have to be realistic first about what you're dealing with. But once you are, you can shape. We can shape the terms of our engagement with China. We're not, uh, despite the, the mindset that we are often encouraged to have, that we are uh, weak, uh, that we are dependent, uh, that we are helpless in the face of Chinese anger. And hasn't that been a triumph? You know, you know, Mayor Kalpa, I'll take responsibility for all the crimes of the media here, but in recent, recent decades, if there's a, a, f you know, a year goes by without top-level exchange of leaders, and we have a media panic. Oh, China, China's angry. Oh, how many times have you seen that headline? China angry at Australia. Well, they've trained us into that, you know? We don't have this relationship with any other country, not even the Americans. You know, they say they'll, they'll do or say something harsh or offensive. We just get on with it. We don't take it seriously. We have self-censored and self-trained. Self so they've done it. They've done it successfully. Okay, but, but we don't, on, need, but, to, we don't but, need to fall for that. Yeah, but on the back of these trade figures. So I've got a friend who runs an air conditioning business, and he said to me once, he said, "I'm so worried. I'm getting so much business." Well, what's the problem with that? It's all from it's all from uh, the post office. So I'm doing every post office with the air conditioning. But they're now 80% of my business. I'm entirely fucked. What happens? I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to put the quotes up so high that they'll never accept them. So I can get because I'm otherwise just entirely dependent. If they decide to pull the pin I'm finished this is Australia's situation you might say resist them but what if you're Penfolds wine company and you're entirely dependent on what if you're Fortescue Metals Group you're entirely dependent on them yeah well it's a problem it's a real problem and uh, or sorry or the ANU yeah or Sydney University or yeah. UTS yeah that's that's right uh, and it is it is a real problem uh, and every time a trade deal of any significance is done uh, and the Australian you know minister or the chief executive depending on who it is congratulates him or herself on a on a br brilliant breakthrough there's a Chinese government official who notes it down as a future pressure point for economic coercion uh, and it will be at some point if it suits the Chinese government a vulnerability so there's a couple of obvious things there uh, first you have to realize that that has to be the, the starting point that it's not just a commercial relationship. Many are, many will be. Others will be uh, counted in Beijing as being future coercion points. We need to know that. And across the country, we need to know that. Second, uh, the ancient principle of diversification never hurt anybody. Uh, and if you know, once you know you're vulnerable, then you can do something about it. I'm not suggesting that Australia resist Chinese business at all. I am suggesting that we uh, seek business elsewhere as well. When you hit when you hit a, a China uh, a demand stream, uh, it feels like you've been caught in a giant updraft uh, and, you're, and you're being zoomed towards the clouds in a rocket because your business just takes off and all this money gushes in. Uh, but you, as long as you know that you've got a long way to fall when the, the fuel supply is cut off, then you can start planning and diversifying. 
There's a specific thing too, and you know, so the federal government should get some credit. They've been doing as many free trade deals as they can to try and diversify trade flows, uh, despite the trend set by our great and powerful friend in Washington. Um, and there is a specific thing that Peter Varghese uh, suggests. Varghese used to be the head of foreign affairs and trade. He's now the chancellor of Queensland University. And he just make, makes a, a, a practical point about uh, creating a buffer. And they're doing this now at Queensland University under his suggestion. And that is that uh, rather than just take all, if you're a university, say, take the annual revenue from your Chinese student flow and spend it all on recurrent expenses each year, take a portion of that, put it in a reserve fund, call it an infrastructure fund or a scholarship fund or something, and then if and when the tap is turned off uh, in Beijing, you've got uh, some resilience and you can, you can cope. It's not going to solve all your problems, but it does give you a, a level of resilience that you wouldn't otherwise have. And if it's pinfolds, we're willing to step up. <laughs> Thank Peter Hutcher. Thanks for listening to another Gleebooks Author Talk, brought to you by Gleebooks in collaboration with 2SER. If you'd like to be a part of the action next time, please visit gleebooks.com.au slash bookings. We'd love to see you there.